So we are in the book of Kings, and specifically 1 Kings. 1 and 2 Kings are really the same book, or not the same book, but they're one large book. And in your Bible, they're split into two. We're just starting out. We're in the first section of that. So we're in 1 Kings. We'll be in chapter 3 and 4 this morning. Um, and so to remind you about last week, because this is a continuing story, all right? So we always kind of need to remember the last thing we read and put it together with the thing we're in now, right? And, and so last time we, we, we've seen David's reign come to an end with his death as an old man, and the handoff to Solomon was not exactly smooth, but it happened. That's the important thing. And we saw in the middle of that a lot of dysfunction in David's family. And it's not just David's family, it's all of Israel. And we're going to see that no matter what we try to do or what the kings try to do, that this dysfunction just continues because the kings end up just not following God. And we see David, as he hands off the kingdom to Solomon, he says, follow God, walk in his ways, do what he says, worship God, be a follower of Yahweh. If you do that, God will bless you. And it's the big if, right? That's really the story of kings, is what happens in the if. If you follow Yahweh, I'll bless you. Because what we find out, that that if is very difficult. Even when you have everything, all the power, all the authority, all the money, all the everything at your disposal, even when you are the best one anyone could pick out of your people, the smartest, the wisest, which we're going to talk about this morning, the richest, with all the people in their power and ingenuity behind you, you still can't pull off the if. We need something else, and that's what we're going to see or begin to see this morning with Solomon. We're going to talk about Solomon's famous wisdom. So just to give you a, a, an overview, the first, until chapter 11, Solomon looks pretty good. He's on hero status pretty much. There are some warning signs, though, that we'll see this morning that I'm going to talk about initially. A little foreshadowing of Solomon's Achilles heel that's going to wreck him later. So we're going to start here, 1 Kings chapter 3, the first two verses. So just think of this as like foreshadowing, like in a movie when they put something in the background that becomes important later. And maybe you didn't notice it when you first watched it, but when you see it again, you like, ah, that's the murder weapon in the background, or whatever it is, right? This is the thing in the background that's going to get Solomon. It says, this is verse 1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. So three things... Solomon's doing wrong here. First is Solomon married a woman from outside Israel. The Bible supports marriage between different races, but not different faiths. You can look that up, 2 Corinthians 6, 14. Solomon is violating directly Deuteronomy 7, 3 through 4, which clearly prohibits this kind of marriage, very clearly. In fact, Deuteronomy 17 and several other places looks a little bit like it's where it talks about the requirements for kings. It looks like a checklist that Solomon went through where it says, don't do it. He goes, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do that. And when we're done with looking at Solomon's life, 
I'm gonna, we're going to look at those scriptures, and I'm, I'm going to show you how he checked every single one of them off, what not to do that God commanded kings not to do. He did every single one of them. And this is just the first sort of hint that that's where Solomon's going to end up. Secondly, he formed an alliance with Egypt. Egypt is one of the enemies of God in the Old Testament. It's sort of the classic, you know, like in the 80s, it was for us during the Cold War, it was Russia, right? It was in all, it was all, all the movies. Whenever there was a bad guy in a movie, he was always Russian, right? Even when it didn't make any sense contextually, there was always a Russian guy there who was the bad guy, right? What was it, Rocky 3 or 4? It's like, what are we, like, why is there a Russian guy fighting Rocky? I don't know, but... But that's what we did. And in the Old Testament, it's Egypt. Egypt is sort of the, 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 the poster child for being pagan and against God. Okay, So that's how you can think of Egypt. And here, Solomon's first move is to marry into Pharaoh's family and make an alliance with Egypt. In fact, it was also the place of their captivity, if you remember the story of the Israelites. Deuteronomy 17, another one, 14 through 20, prohibits returning there. Expressly prohibits going back to Egypt, which you kind of would think wouldn't be something God would have to say, but apparently he did. Don't go back to the place that made you slaves. You know those beautiful pyramids? Amazing you know, feats of engineering built on the backs of these people. Don't go back there. And the third thing he does is he allowed and participated in worship in the high places. We'll come back to this idea a few times, but high places were elevated areas of earth where people went to worship all sorts of false gods. Mounds or hills or little mountains. So when you see the word high places, that's what it's referring to. And this is where it appears that the people of God were going to worship God. Now they were worshiping God. But they were worshiping God in a place it was sort of sketchy to go worship when you were supposed to be worshiping only Yahweh. It's where, so, so you're worshiping your God, and then there's somebody else over here worshiping their God, and you're all kind of together in this place. And it's just a hint. And it seems to be maybe there's an excuse for it because they don't have a temple yet where God is where they can go worship. So it's sort of excused, but it's not wise. And we're going to see this little unwise move unfolds and unfolds throughout the whole book of Kings, all right? Okay, so there's some foreshadowing, but like I said, it's like that's in the background right now. It'll come to the foreground. So let's look at chapter 3, verses 3 to 14. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. There's that. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. Try to picture a thousand burnt offerings. That's a big, that's a big cookout. It's a lot. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. 
And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this, and God said to him, Because you have gasped this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, <clears throat> as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Pretty wild story. Solomon's out doing kind of a massive sacrifice, a show of worship towards God, and not just in one of these like little high places, but like the best high place. And there apparently he goes to sleep and has a dream, and in his dream God comes to him and says, what do you want? Ask me anything. Ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. Wow. Really? The God, the creator, is asking me what I want. And Solomon, wisely, doesn't ask for all the obvious things. He asks for wisdom, and God grants him wisdom and is so impressed by his request that he also gives him the other stuff that he didn't ask for. There's a lot to commend here. The first thing I think I see here is it says that he loved Yahweh in verse 3. That's the opening phrase. It says that he loved God. He loved the Lord. It says that he knew where his blessing came from. He had heard what his father David had told him and he was t- taking it to heart and he was following God. It says he followed what David taught him about worshiping God except that he worshiped in the high places. But you know, we'll get to that later. Solomon is genuinely humble. He says in verse 7, I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. It's a wonderful phrase. I don't know if I'm coming or going. You ever heard that? It's the same idea. Now Solomon is not literally a child, in case you're confused. But he is aware that he is not up to the task. He looks at God's people and he goes, I can't do this. I don't don't know what I'm doing. You ever felt like that? It's like the first day on the job. Whatever the job is, I don't care what it is. The first day you feel lost, Imposter syndrome. I don't know what I'm doing here, if I know how to do this job, if I'm going to be able to do this job. I'm overwhelmed. Somebody tell me how to act. And that's Solomon. That's a humility. He asks for wisdom in verse 9 because he recognizes that these are God's people and he needs help to lead and steward them well. He asks for wisdom because he is aware of his own weakness and his responsibility to God's people. His acknowledgement that this is about God's people God, this is about your, these people belong to you. They don't belong to me. Now that changes really quickly. They become basically cannon fodder 
for his kingdom. But right now, (laughs) Solomon's in the right place in his heart. God, these are your people, not my people. They're for you, not for me. This is your kingdom, not my kingdom. I don't know how to do this. I'm not up to this. This is too important for you to give to me to do. So would you please give me wisdom? That's what I need. I don't need more stuff. I need wisdom. So the basis of his boldness to ask is not his own worthiness, but God's covenant with his father David. Remember, he, he, he calls on God's promise to his father David in his prayer. God, you are faithful to my father, and you've been faithful to the kingdom by giving them a king, which is me. So will you bless me the way you blessed my father David? And then we have two examples initially of Solomon's wisdom. We have two really great stories. Well, I would say the second one probably was boring to you when you read it, where you get the list of names of government appointees. It's like watching the NBA draft, right? I mean, if you're really into basketball, you watch it. But for everybody else, it's the most boring thing on the planet. I'm going to help you look at that. But that's an example of his wisdom. The first one is solving some complex local disputes. Right? The story of the two prostitutes, which we're going to look at. And then the other was setting up a government structure where there didn't seem to be one before. It's kind of incredible what he does. If you read it carefully and think about what it means. So let's look at this local dispute. This is in chapter 3, verses 16 to 27. I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to retell the story. It's a famous story. Even outside of the world of Christianity, it's a famous story. You have two prostitutes that come to Solomon with a problem they have. A very interesting problem. A dilemma. They both gave birth at the same time. One of the women claimed that the other mother had accidentally smothered her baby in the bed overnight and then had secretly switched her dead child for the sleeping mother's living child. So picture this. We don't know which is which. One of them, in the middle of the night, accidentally smothered her baby and snuck over and switched the newborn babies, thinking she won't notice because they're so young. They both claim to be the mother of the living baby and want Solomon to sort it out. So imagine being Solomon for a minute. You don't know either of these women. And they come walking in, and one says, one is holding a baby, the other is not, and she's saying, that's my baby. And the other lady saying, no, it's not. <clears throat> it's mine. What do you do? Solomon, in his, the wisdom God had given him, comes up with an idea. Now, I've tried this with my kids over toys, and it did not work. <clears throat> I thought I was being brilliant, and it did not work. I've tried it multiple times over the years. So, I don't know. Maybe you'll have better success. I just had broken toys and two children crying. I don't know. <laughs> but I tried it, right? Solomon asks for someone to bring him a sword. And he says that he's going to cut the baby in half, and both moms can have half a baby. No doubt he wasn't actually going to do it, but mm, probably. Who knows? Solomon was an interesting fellow. He might have done it. I don't know. But can you imagine, like, you're both moms, he says, bring me a nice sharp sword, I'm going to Cut the babies in half. Now, what are the moms, how do they react? The real mother cries out and says, stop. 
let the baby live. Give the, give the mother, the other mom, the baby. I just want the baby to live. Now, if you're really the mom of that child, Solomon is counting on the mom, the real mom, being a mom, reacting like a mother, which is anything to not see my baby hurt. And this is exactly how the real mother reacts. She says, no, don't, just, just let her have the baby. And the other mother who was holding the baby says, cut him in half. Ice cold. That's evil, isn't it? That's exactly how someone would react who was, had the lack of, enough lack of conscience to go steal somebody else's baby in the middle of the night. So Solomon gives the baby to the real mother, right? This story <clears throat> goes out and everybody learns, wow, King Solomon is not just a great king, he's incredibly wise. The other thing we see is Solomon setting up the government, verses chapter 4, 1 through 19. <clears throat> Got a frog in my throat this morning. Solomon appointed lots of officers, creating oversight positions, many of which likely did not exist during David's reign, that he hadn't even thought of, including like secretaries and and, and scholars to, to, to write down notes and keep documents on every, every decision that was made. All the characters mentioned here become very pivotal later. There would have been considerably more people that he appointed to various positions that are not mentioned. So all of this results in a massive expansion to the kingdom of Israel. I mean massive. And this is the point in the story where it sort of jumps really quickly and it's hard to get a sense of the time. So let's read this and focus on it for a minute. Chapter 4, 20 to 34. Just an example. Try to <clears throat> imagine all this stuff. The mountain of stuff that this is. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines, to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. So tribute would be like taxes, basically. Solomon's provision for one day, <clears throat> one day, was 30 cores of fine flour, and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, and 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl, for he had 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep. Oh, wait, I just read the same line. Verse 24. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsha to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates, and he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety, from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon, a chicken in every pot. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. That's his army. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required, each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, 
wiser than Ethan the Israelite and Heman and Calcol and Darda, the sons of Mahal. His fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. So he's not just wise, he's also a writer, a prolific writer. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. This is tremendous prosperity. But if you're a student of of the Bible or just of history, you might start feeling a little uncomfortable. What does this much wealth and power do to somebody? When one man alone wields it all at his whim? What happens if that man is no longer submitted to God? What happens if if that man begins to make some compromises in his allegiance to Christ? What happens? We all know what happens historically. So you see this, and there's kind of two things I think that happens in your heart. One is, wow, look at what Solomon's wisdom produced, right? That's incredible. What blessing on Israel. And at the same time, you feel sort of nervous. Like this is a lot. What's going to happen? It's not going to stay like this, but it will for a little while. So one of the questions I have when I've been looking at this is this whole situation with God coming to Solomon and asking him what he wants. And I think it's strange. Like why the genie in the bottle routine? I mean, isn't that curious to you? That God would come to Solomon and ask him to tell him, tell God what Solomon wants, what he needs, what's best for him. Does Solomon know? Solomon has just said, I'm a child. I'm an idiot. I'm a numbskull. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if I'm coming or going. And you're going to ask me what I need. I don't want God to ask me that question because I don't know the answer. That's what I need. I'll be like, that's what I need you for, God. I need you to tell me what I need because I'm confused. Sometimes I feel like I really know what I need. If I just had this ability or just had this opportunity or just had didn't have this problem then all would be sorted out sometimes i feel confident in that but most of the time i look at that confidence and i think that's scary that's dangerous that confidence because i don't really know what i need and when i'm most confident is when I'm probably in the most danger is what i'm walking around knowing what my problem is because sometimes it's usually it's quite deeper than that Certainly one application of that story is that we all need wisdom and we should ask for it, and that's right. I mean, I need wisdom, you need wisdom. I can relate to that feeling of feeling kind of in over your head. Many stages in my life, basically whenever I take on more responsibility of any sort, new job, married, kids, whatever it is, pastoring, or feel overwhelmed and I need wisdom and that's right but I think there's a deeper thing here this question of why does God come to Solomon like this when Solomon is a child and doesn't know anything why would God condescend to ask him 
what he should do. That is bizarre to me. It just seems like a weird kind of condescension from God that God would ask him. And then, is God really impressed? Is God ever like, whoa, Ben, impress me today? I don't know. That's just a weird thing to me. Because it's like, it's like you saying to an ant or a bug on the floor, bug on the floor, what do you need from me? And the bug says, I'm a bug. Don't you know I'm a bug? Like, that's kind of up to you. I think it's simply because it pleases him. I think that's the reason. I think that's the reason God asked Solomon, what do you want from me? It's not because he needed to know. It's not to teach Solomon some lesson about his, you know, agency as a human being. It's just because it pleases him to talk with us. This is prayer. This is an example of what prayer is. God says, I know what you need. He knows. He doesn't have to think about it. He has a wonder. Let's consider what Ben needs today. He knows exactly what I need. But he still wants me to say it. He wants to hear it from me. He wants me to talk to him. Why? It's weird. It just makes him happy. It pleases him. He wants a relationship with us. You know, God had already promised to bless Solomon if he walked in his ways, wisdom or not. He didn't say, if you have wisdom. The if is not about wisdom. He didn't say, if you have wisdom, I will bless you. He said, if you follow me and walk in my ways, I will bless you. That was the promise from God. This wisdom thing was like some kind of bonus on top of it. It's God's way of including Solomon in the blessing. Participate. I'm going to bless you either way if you follow me. But wouldn't it be cool if, if, if I used you to bring the blessing and not just me doing it miraculously for you all the time? God wants a relationship with Solomon and he wants a relationship with his people God had already bound himself by his own covenant to bless faithful kings no matter what. The prosperity that came from Solomon's wisdom had already been promised before Solomon was even born. He promised it to David. Even Solomon's wisdom is the fruit of his love for God and his faithfulness to him. This suddenly makes this a little more accessible to the rest of us, because I don't know about you, but I've never had a dream where God came to me and said, my son... What is it that you want? And I'll give it to you. I'm glad for that, to be honest. Because I don't think I'd be nearly as wise. as I probably would say wisdom just because Solomon asked for it and it seemed to go well for him, but God would kind of see through that. that it's like a, trying to get a two-for-one deal. It's like saying to the genie, genie, I want three more wishes. And he's like, no, you can't do that, right? God would see through it somehow. What God wants from Solomon is this prayerful communication. It's all, all prayer is. Is you bring a request to God that he already knows, he's already aware of, and he's already got a plan for. That your prayer is part of the plan. So he includes your prayer in the plan. He makes your prayer a vital part of his work through you. Not just in your life, but in the lives of the people around you. 
Solomon said it himself in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord is this interesting Old Testament phrase that's not just about fear, simply it is about fear, but it's, it's really kind of a catch-all phrase for what God do you serve? What God, what God do you fear? What God do you serve? What God do you worship? What God do you honor? Who's your God? It says if you fear the Lord, if you worship God, if you're a follower of God, if you're submitted to and honoring God as your God, then that's the beginning of wisdom right there. He had sorted it out there in the beginning. He says he loved God. He loved the Lord. It's true that Solomon's wisdom was a gift from God, but it's also true that Solomon's wisdom came from his right relationship with God. Wisdom or no wisdom, without God's blessing, Solomon would not succeed. We'll also see that played out. Wisdom is not the key. It's his relationship and rightness with God that's the key. It's interesting that in the New Testament, wisdom is a gift of the Spirit. I think that's really cool. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul distinguishes between man's wisdom and the wisdom that comes from being united with Christ. Let's look at it just a piece of that. Verses 26 to 31. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. You don't need to raise your hand. We all know. It's <laughs> to all of us. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ became to us wisdom itself. Whoa, what? He didn't just give you wisdom. He said, here's some wisdom for you. He gave us himself because who is more wise than Christ? Nobody, not even Solomon. While Solomon's wisdom was given to him on the condition of his right relationship with God, Christ is our wisdom. And if you're a follower of Christ, you are in Christ and Christ is in you. He uses that phrase right here in 1 Corinthians. Is anyone more wise than Christ? Is there any knowledge, discernment, understanding, or insight to be had that is outside of him? No. Anything that is to be known is known by Jesus. All knowledge belongs to him. All insight is in him. All wisdom, all discernment, all of it is in him. He always knows what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. Always. He always knows what to say, when to say it, and how to say it. Always. His knowledge is perfect, and he is in you if you're a Christian. That's amazing. Wisdom itself, or wisdom himself, we should say, resides within you by the Holy Spirit. So, being filled with the Holy Spirit, or walking in step with the Spirit, means at least, in part, having the wisdom of Christ in you and operating through you. If you've got the Holy Spirit in you, you 
you can listen to him and do what he says when he says it. You have the wisdom of Christ working through you all the time, which is far better than the wisdom of Solomon. So I think quite often our problem is that we aren't listening to the Spirit when he speaks. It's not a lack of wisdom. God, give me wisdom is a good prayer, but understand what that means. What, you really, what that really means when you say, God, give me wisdom, is give me, fill me with the Spirit if I'm not, and then would you, would you help me to listen to him and obey him, even if it seems nuts and crazy, even if it doesn't, if it goes against my conventional wisdom, I think quite often we're filled more with, we're searching our Google search results more than we're searching the mind of Christ and listening to the Spirit. We're trying to get wisdom from the world. What do I do? What do how do I raise my kids? Listen, the world can't tell you the right way to raise your kids. They have failed. They just have. It's not that there's nothing to learn, but you have Christ's wisdom itself within you. Why are you going there? You have all that in Christ. You don't have to be lost. So we can receive his wisdom, wisdom in three ways, and I'll close with this. Three essential ways. Give you three things to do, right? All good sermons have an action point at the end. Number one. Pray. That's not a throwaway answer. That's the answer. <laughs> right? I'm telling you to do what Solomon did. Ask. Take the time to ask and then prayerfully listen. Expect an answer from God. Pray and then listen. And quite often, the answer to the situation just comes to you. That's not just you thinking of stuff. It's God answering your questions. Number two, read. Spend time in the Bible, learn what it says, learn the principles it contains. You will find out, you will find that you not only learn the commands and the principles, but also learn the mind of God. One of the things I've learned about spending lots of time in the Bible is that you start to learn how God thinks. To the point where you don't have to look everything up in the Bible anymore, you just know what God would say. And you know how God thinks, and you know his principles, you know what's important to him, and it makes living your life, it gives you a kind of built-in wisdom because you've just spent a lot of time reading what he says. And it gets in there, and your wisdom goes up. You know more of what to say and how to think, and you know more when you're acting like an idiot and when you're not because you've spent time just saturating your mind and your heart in the word of God. And number three, ask. The Holy Spirit's not just in you, but in other Christians. It's good news. Because I find, I don't know about you, I think this is common. It's harder to hear from God for myself than for other people. I think that's God's design. I used to feel guilty about like that. I should be better at Because other people seem to just hear God all the time and for themselves, and I don't. And I think it's actually the common, the more common thing is that it's easier for me for, to pray for Randy 
and, and get a sense of what God is saying to Randy than it is for me to pray for myself and to have the thing. It's because God's designed us to be together as a family. And the primary way that you experience the felt presence of God is in the presence of other believers. It's the presence of Christ in them that you feel. That's a beautiful thing. It's what makes this different from the Ruritan Club or whatever else, the Lions Club or the whatever the other clubs are in town, right? That's the difference. They do cool stuff too. They probably sing songs together. I don't know. But what makes this unique is that Christ is here. And so ask, ask your, Christ, your believing friends, what do you think about this? Do you have any wisdom for me? And ask them to pray for you. And it's amazing what happens. I, it just draws something out of you that doesn't get drawn out otherwise. I think you might be amazed at how God leads you. So those are my three things. Pray, read, and ask. Let's stand up together and I will pray for you. God, I thank you that we don't have to feel like grown-ups that don't always know what to do. We can just be like Solomon, at least at the beginning of his reign, who felt like a child, who didn't know anything, didn't know how to do his life, didn't know what to do with the responsibilities he had been given. Was that you had made him king and you were there and his source was you and these people belong to you. So God, we first I just pray that you would help us comfortable in that place of not knowing what to do, not knowing how to solve all the problems that we're responsible to solve. Instead, Lord, we just lean into you right now rest on you we depend on you right now and we ask Holy Spirit would you fill us once again as Paul says just all over again and that we would be filled with the will of Christ the knowledge the insight the discernment God, that when the moments come where we have to make decisions, that they will be your decisions and they'll be the right ones. Give us the wisdom to know when to speak and when not to. Give us the wisdom of, to know what to say when it's time to speak. God, give the parents here wisdom over their children as every child is a complicated, unique creation. And it is challenging to know what to do and when to do it and how to do it. So God, I pray for the parents that you would give them the wisdom of Christ. God, I pray for every married couple the same thing. God, that you would give them the wisdom to be good to each other and to know how to be married for the rest of their life. 
God, I pray for every person in this room, God, every friend, God, everyone who has a job and other responsibilities. God, we are entering, we are living in a complicated culture that is filled with some things we can agree with and some things we have to really disagree with. And it can be very complicated moving around in the world and interacting with it. God, give us wisdom. The coming season, God, for the church, is going to be more complicated. And more than ever, we need the wisdom of Christ flowing through us. And so right now, we just confess we are like children. And we lean on you right now. And we depend on you right now, Holy Spirit. We ask you for wisdom. We ask you that we will be more like Christ. In the name of Jesus. Amen.